Military murder is an independent project and is not endorsed by the Department of Defense or any military component. The views expressed are those of the host. The content of this podcast is not meant to be legal or medical advice. Warning, this episode contains graphic details of murder and is not suitable for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back, True Crime Army. I am your host, Margot, and this is a true crime podcast where I focus on crimes committed by military members and veterans. But don't worry, you don't have to know anything about the military to listen, I promise. You just have to be a true crime enthusiast. And if that's you, welcome home. First, I want to start off this episode by thanking everyone who has signed up for the Patreon fan club. Y'all, we made it to 100 patrons, and I'm super thrilled And I'm actually planning on doing a remote live where all the patrons get to know me as a person just a little bit better. And I just want to say I'm so touched that folks believe in this podcast enough. And let's not forget all the cool perks that you get in the fan club, such as ad-free episodes, bonus regular episodes, stickers, podcast challenge coins, and the list goes on and on. So if that's something that you're interested in, make sure that you visit patreon.com slash military murder to see how you can get in on all the fun. Now, on to the reason that you're here today, to chat true crime. And since it's February, I figured, why not discuss military love gone terribly wrong? Y'all know my number one rule, divorce is better than murder, followed closely behind by number two, which is breaking up is better than murder if you're not married. But even with that rule in place, some people think they are slick enough to get away with murder. Or is it that they just don't give a flip? I don't know. Fort Bragg. (laughs) They have been on my list for quite some time. And today, they are on the chopping block again. The summer of 2008 was a deadly summer for active duty female soldiers stationed at Fort Bragg. Was there a serial killer targeting active duty female soldiers? Or were they just unlucky in love? Join me today as I discuss the lives of Megan Tuma, Holly Wymunk, and Christina Smith. Now, let's dig in. My sources for this episode are a 48 Hours episode titled NCIS, The Cases They Can't Forget, Trail of Fire, an investigation discovery show called Love Affairs, Love is a Battlefield, and various articles by the Military Justice for All blog, AP News, and Military Times. Special shout out to WRAL, who was the number one reporting agencies on the cases that I am going to cover today. Shout out to them for their almost daily coverage of these cases at the time that they occurred. Megan Tuma was born on August 26, 1984, in Seoul, South Korea, to a military family. Both her parents had served in the military, and some of her siblings would also go on to serve the country. Most reports describe Megan as being from Cold Spring, Kentucky. She attended Campbell County High School, where she was a cheerleader, but her passion turned out to be running. She was an avid runner who ran cross-country, but even after high school, she continued running. In 2003, right out of high school, Megan joined the Army and was stationed at Fort Drum in New York. There, she would meet her husband, El Said Tuma. She was only 19 years old when she got married, but the pair seemed to be truly in love. But almost as soon as their love began, 
the military geographically separated them and they did the long distance thing for some time. And just as they were getting used to it, the army decided to put even more distance between them by sending Megan to Bamberg, Germany, where they would be an ocean apart. Megan was a dental assistant and all seemed to be going well for her in Germany. But all the while, her relationship with her husband, who was back home in the States, was deteriorating. And it was while stationed in Germany that she met another soldier who really made her get all the feels. The soldier was Sergeant Edgar Patino. He was dark and handsome. Edgar Patino joined the Army National Guard in 2000, and he transitioned to the active duty component of the Army in March of 2004. He was assigned to Bamberg in October of 2004. He then deployed out of Bamberg for a year from 2005 to 2006. And it was upon his return from deployment that he bumped into the pretty and bubbly Megan Tuma. They instantly had sparks. Now, it's unclear when Megan and Edgar began their relationship, but Megan and her husband in the U.S. decided to go their separate ways. And their divorce was finalized in March of 2007. Megan, however, didn't even let the ink dry on her divorce before her and Edgar got into a relationship hot and heavy. And everyone in the unit knew it. Eventually, Edgar proposed to Megan and she was over the moon shouting from the rooftops. She was thrilled. He even gave her an engagement ring and she was proud to wear it everywhere she went. Then Edgar told her some pretty amazing news. He applied for the special forces training and guess what? He got picked up. He would leave for training at Fort Bragg in December of 2007. And while Megan was thrilled for her boothing to level up in the army, I bet she couldn't help but feel like, dang it, the army was doing it to her all over again. In December of that year, Edgar returned to the U.S. to settle down at Fort Bragg for his psychological operations training, also known as PSYOPs. He promised Megan that they would be in touch. A few weeks after Edgar left Germany, he received a call from Megan, which was not out of the ordinary, and she was excited to tell him he was going to be a daddy. Megan was pregnant and she was due in late summer. And Edgar was like, yay, but he wasn't really excited, which is not the reaction that Megan expected. Meanwhile, Megan was back at her unit in Germany and there was a baby growing inside her, Edgar's baby. But then she began to hear murmurs about Edgar being married. Say what now? I can only imagine Megan having a major panic attack as she realized she put all of her eggs in one basket, the Edgar Patino basket, only to find out she thought she was his fiance, but she was actually his mistress. Well, Megan don't got time for that. And in February of 2008, she requests a transfer to Fort Bragg and the transfer was approved, but she wouldn't be arriving until June of 2008. And during the following months, Megan and Edgar would make up and break up and make up and break up time and time again. And it turns out the rumors were true. Edgar was in fact married to a woman named Helena, who according to a documentary on IDTV's Deadly Affairs, she came from a wealthy family. So divorcing her was far from Edgar's mind. And Helena had no idea about Megan and she definitely had no idea about the baby. On June 11th, 2008, 
Megan said goodbye to her life in Germany and she arrived at Fort Bragg on the 12th, checking in at around 2 a.m. She attended two formations that day, one at 6.15 in the morning and another at 3 p.m. Apparently, she had been assigned a barracks room, but on top of the fact that she was pregnant and they rarely put pregnant women in the barracks, the room's air conditioner was broken. Now, by this point, it's summertime in North Carolina. Megan is seven months pregnant and there ain't no way her pregnant rear is staying in a room without AC. If I were her, I would be throwing a big old fit. So due to this, she was allowed to find off-base accommodations and she did just that and she was staying at the Fairfield Inn located at 5000 Morganton Road off Skibbo Road near Cross Creek Mall. Well, Megan was off the next day, June 13th, and well, that formation she had attended the day before at 3 p.m., that was the last time anyone ever saw Megan. It was almost as if she, poof, vanished, but no one in her unit even noticed. She was a pregnant soldier, so maybe they just got preoccupied with work, or maybe they thought she was house hunting, but no one was tracking her whereabouts, and this would become very important. Megan missed her first formation on June 16th, but the 17th came and went and no one reported Megan missing or even AWOL. Meanwhile, on June 21st, a few guests at the Fairfield Inn reported a wretched smell coming from one of the rooms. At around 11.30 a.m., a maintenance worker went by the room and there was a do not disturb sign on the knob. He checked the records and saw that the room was assigned to Megan Tuma. She was scheduled to check out the following day, but when he knocked, no one answered. So he entered the room and almost as soon as he opened the door, he was hit with the smell of death. Upon entering the room all the way, he didn't see anyone until he went into the bathroom and right there in the bathtub was a badly decomposed body. He quickly called 911. The Fayetteville Police Department arrived on scene. They noted the AC had been turned off in the room. They found the body partially clothed and submerged in water, but it was so badly decomposed, they couldn't even attempt to identify how the woman died. Was it a gunshot, a knife, a beating? They couldn't tell. The body was quickly taken for an autopsy and it was revealed that the body was in fact Megan Tuma. She was pregnant with a son and she had been murdered. But because the police didn't have the killer in handcuffs, they refused to reveal the manner of death to the public. Both the Fayetteville detectives in conjunction with the Army Criminal Investigation Division, CID, got to interviewing people. CID was in charge of interviewing all of the folks back in Germany who knew Megan. Meanwhile, the detectives in the States were looking for the killer here. Immediately, the name Edgar Patino, Edgar Patino, Edgar Patino came up. He and Megan had been involved in a romantic relationship. Edgar Patino was immediately brought in for questioning and he denied knowing anything about her murder. He did, however, admit to fathering the baby and he actually admitted to visiting Megan on the evening of June 13th. But he stated he was in the room, but only 30 minutes before they got into a heated argument and he left. She was alive and well when he returned to be with his wife. And this was an interesting tidbit since the entry card on Megan's room door had been last used on June 
13th. When detectives interview Helena, the wife, she backs up her husband's story. And without anything else, Edgar was released. And it appeared that Edgar would be in the clear when a week after the discovery of Megan's death, the Fayetteville Observer received a letter from the alleged killer. A few days after Megan's body was discovered, the Fayetteville Observer received an anonymous letter that was dated June 17th, but postmarked on June 24th. And the letter is haunting. It says, quote, to whom it may concern. The following is to inform you I am responsible for the dead body that was found on Saturday, June 21st, 1130 a.m. in room 143 at Fairfield Inn by Marriott off Skibbo Road. I confess that I have killed many times before in several states, but now I will start using my role model signature. There will be many more to come. Fayetteville law enforcement are very incompetent. I basically sat there and watched while investigators were on site, end quote. What? Which role model is this person even talking about? Well, investigators would quickly recognize the symbol left on the note, which happened to match a symbol drawn on the bathroom mirror in Megan's hotel room. It was the symbol left by infamous serial killer, the Zodiac Killer, a serial killer from the 60s and 70s that has not been caught until this day. In any event, the Fayetteville Police Department took the letter back as evidence, but they make it clear to the public they do not have a serial killer on their hands. They believe that the letter was sent to derail the investigation. But the investigators must be sweating bullets because they know the killer probably wrote the letter because they had kept that Zodiac killer symbol found at the murder scene out of their reports to the media because they know only the real killer would know that was there. By the way, for those of you who don't know, the Zodiac killer symbol is a circle with a T over it. It actually resembles the crosshairs of a gun sight. Well, almost immediately after this letter is published to the public, the police department says they have a person of interest in the case. It's an active duty army soldier stationed at Fort Bragg, but they refuse to release the name. Another thing police are not releasing is Megan's manner of death. They keep that close hold. And while the public can breathe a sigh of relief, they get on edge again after another Fort Bragg active duty female soldier goes missing three weeks after Megan's body was discovered. Born in 1983, Holly Lynn James was from Dubuque, Iowa. She grew up in a small rural town where everyone knew everyone. There were about 450 people in her town. Eventually, she transitioned from a small town school to a bigger school. She ended up going to Hempstead High School and the girl was involved in everything. She played basketball, volleyball, softball. She also cheered and she really liked theater, performing in school plays, and she actually had a knack for music, including playing the clarinet. Eventually, she went to college, and she shared her life goals with her good friends. She wanted to be a pediatric nurse. By this point, Holly had a long-term boyfriend, and Holly had two kids. Her oldest was a son, and her daughter came three years after he did. Holly was excited to be going into nursing, and pediatrics seemed like a perfect fit. 
But then one summer, the summer between her junior and senior year of college, she met a Marine when she was visiting Jacksonville, Florida. Holly's brother was also a Marine, and he thought Holly and this Marine would hit it off. So he made the introduction. The Marine was Corporal John Wymunk. He was a combat engineer. He joined the Marines in 2005 and deployed to Iraq in 2006 and later again deployed to a non-combat zone. Well, the pair quickly began dating and they dated throughout her senior year, both fall and spring semester. And then something clicked in the spring semester and Holly just knew that John was the man for her. So they quickly got married. Then she did something unexpected. She told her friends she was joining the army. So it was 2007 and she figured that if she really wanted to make a difference, what better way to do it than to join the military? Holly's husband at the time was stationed at Cap Lejeune in Jacksonville, North Carolina, and Holly's first duty assignment was Fort Bragg in Fayetteville, which is a little over a two-hour drive from Camp Lejeune. Holly was working as a nurse in the maternity ward at the Womack Medical Center. Holly and her kid's father shared custody, so the kids stayed with Holly most of the time, and then they would go to the dad to be with him sometimes. John split his time between Camp Lejeune and their family two-bedroom apartment in Fayetteville near Fort Bragg. Well, after Holly and John were married, Holly learned of an ex-girlfriend that seemed to be obsessed with John. Her name was Lindsay H., and she lived out of state. Now, Lindsay was pissed that another woman had encroached on her territory so quickly, and Lindsay began to stalk and harass Holly. It got so bad that Holly had to change her phone number And then Lindsay started asking other people to call and harass Holly. One particularly scary and psychotic move was when Lindsay called Holly between 3 and 4 a.m. and just screamed into the phone. Holly was left with no choice but to file a restraining order. And in her request, she told the judge, quote, I have changed my phone number six times. She has had friends contact me as well. This has gone on for eight months, end quote. The judge heard the case and he basically just told Lindsay to knock it off. Then it seemed as though Holly got a new enemy. Now her nemesis was no longer Lindsay, but the very man she married, John Wymunk. At this point, their seemingly perfect relationship turned volatile and Holly began to go to work with bruising, a swollen face, but Holly never said a word. And while folks noticed, they never said anything either. Some of her good friends were with her when John called her just to belittle her. Holly was a second lieutenant in the army. John was an enlisted Marine. Holly outranked him due to her stature as a military officer. But John always found a way to tell Holly, meh, you're not a real officer anyway. You're just a nurse. Everyone has a breaking point, though. And Holly's breaking point came after a particularly rough night where she thought he was going to kill her. On this occasion, John got close to Holly and he showed her something. When she looked, it was a bullet. No, it was two bullets, in fact. But it wasn't just any bullets. It was a bullet with her name on it. He carved Holly's initials on one bullet and carved his own initials on the other. He then loaded the gun and put it to his head, threatening to kill himself. But then he turned the gun on Holly and threatened to kill her. On this occasion, he also strangled her and threw her around the room like she was a rag doll. Holly, the whole time, absolutely terrified. 
that her two poor children would be left without a mother. On May 19, 2008, Holly worked up the nerve to file a restraining order. The temporary restraining order was granted, but the judge ordered a hearing to gather more information. But after much consideration, Holly never went to the hearing because she either didn't want to confront John or she just didn't feel that she needed the continuing restraining order. Or she thought that the temporary restraining order was enough of a wake-up call. Or maybe, like in most cases, she didn't want to get him in trouble with the military. But you know, we'll never really know why Holly didn't go through with it. With her failure to appear, the judge was left without a choice and he removed the temporary restraining order. With that though, Holly did file for a divorce. And after John found out, Holly confided in her father, Jesse, that this was going to be a particularly rough divorce. Jesse, her father, just told her to hang in there. He didn't realize the extent of the abuse she had been enduring. Holly, though, didn't want her kids involved, so she quickly sent them away to be with their father. Jesse told Holly to change the locks on her doors, and so she did. On July 10th, it was a regular work week, and Holly was supposed to be in the office bright and early. But when she didn't arrive, co-workers got suspicious. They eventually sent someone out to her apartment to do a wellness check, and when they arrive at the Morganton Place Apartments at 146 Waya Creek Drive off of Morganton Road, Holly's apartment was intertwined with 19 other units and it appeared to have been burned. The fire appeared deliberately set, but it had burned itself out before anyone even noticed. The police quickly gained entry and when they entered her apartment, the hair on the back of their necks stood up. On June 10th, police make entry into Holly's apartment and immediately they suspect something is terribly wrong. Someone had set fire to her apartment and the carpet in the rooms had been removed and the remaining carpet was charred. They look around, but there's no sign of Holly, even though Holly's car is in the parking lot outside the house. Also glaringly missing from her apartment are two knives from the kitchen knife block that's sitting on the countertop. Detectives know they must work quickly because Holly is in grave danger. They take a canine unit to look for Holly by some woods near her apartment and come up empty-handed. But not only do they have to look for Holly, they are actually kind of concerned that the fire may have caused some other damage to the structure of the building. So they evacuate the remaining tenants at least overnight until they can assess the stability of the structure. They immediately begin canvassing the area and they learn that Holly is married to a Marine. So they, of course, want to interview him. They bring John Wymunk in for questioning and he's like, I don't know where she's at. It's almost as if he just doesn't really care. He then confides in Detective Locklear, the interviewing detective, that he's had a few drinks and he's not sure he'll answer correctly. So Detective Locklear immediately tells him, listen, you're fine. Just leave. Come back when you're sober. And so John Wymunk leaves. But that doesn't keep detectives from actually asking questions around his unit. And while they're canvassing Hallie's apartment complex, detectives learn that various residents saw a man wearing all dark clothing running from the apartment, carrying a bag and speeding off in a black or dark colored truck. And at the same time that they're getting this tip from the apartment residents, 
they also received a tip from Camp Lejeune. A few Marines recall a Marine asking to borrow a truck the night the Holly disappeared. The soldier asking to borrow the truck was Marine Lance Corporal Kyle Alden. And detectives are like, hmm, what are the chances? Lance Corporal Kyle Alden joined the Marines in 2006, and he deployed to Iraq in 2007. A few months before Holly's disappearance, his wife Dawn had alleged that he had hit her and twisted her arm. He was charged with assault in April of 2008. So they bring Kyle in for questioning, and he's not under arrest, but they bring him in and he's talking. He confirms that he borrowed a black truck because he needed to help a friend out. The friend in need of a favor was John Wymunk. John said that he needed help moving some things from Fayetteville, so Kyle decided to help him out. Kyle drove out to Fayetteville because that's where John needed help moving. But then when he got there, John basically was like, nah, you know what? I don't need help anymore. And then, according to Kyle, he drove back two hours and went home to pay the bills. But then he changed his answer. He's like, oh, no, no, wait, wait, scratch that. I didn't. That's not what I did. I actually went home and had sex with my wife. But boom, shakalaka, the detective tells Kyle they spoke to his wife and she couldn't corroborate that story. So Kyle, no kidding, says, yeah, she probably didn't remember that we had sex because she was knocked out. (laughs) What? Come again now, buddy? The detective is equally as shocked as I am. And Kyle says, yeah, she was on some medicine. So whatever, Kyle. He doesn't budge on his story and they bring him in for three consecutive days. Kyle never once requesting an attorney. And it seems like a lost cause, right? Until the detective shows Kyle a picture of Holly and her two kids. And in that moment, Kyle lost it. He starts to get choked up and actually starts crying. The detective asked him again, what happened to Holly? And he says, quote, something bad happened to Holly. Something bad happened in that apartment, end quote. He then admits that John admitted to killing Holly after the couple got into an argument. And after he killed her, he asked Kyle for help getting rid of the evidence. But when pressed about her whereabouts, Kyle said he didn't know where Holly was. At this point, it's been three days since detectives entered Holly's apartment and they get a call. A firefighter is near Seeds Ferry, which is located near Camp Lejeune, when he happened upon a shallow grave. The firefighter asked the detectives, are y'all looking for a little blonde girl? I think I found her. Detectives from Fayetteville and other agencies drive three hours to Sneeds Ferry to investigate. And sure enough, they find charred human remains and they find the two missing knives that match the set at Holly's house. The remains are later identified as belonging to Holly James Wymunk. Whoever put her there wrapped her in a sheet and an air mattress, then dismembered her body, dug a shallow grave, and then tried to burn her body multiple times. Her autopsy revealed she was killed with one gunshot wound to the head. It appears she was dismembered with a hatchet that was also found in the shallow grave. John is then brought in for questioning, but he immediately requests a lawyer. But it doesn't matter because they have a confession from the accessory after the fact. 
Kyle. And once Kyle discovers they found Holly's body, he decides he's going to play ball. Kyle changes his story. He says that John told him he killed Holly. Then he placed her in a military duffel bag and John set the apartment ablaze, never once having sympathy for the other 19 residents of the apartment complex. Now, I'm not sure why the fire wasn't reported or if it was, but it was a pretty massive apartment fire. And it's by the grace of God that people were not injured in that apartment complex. After John and Kyle leave the apartment complex, they head to Camp Lejeune, and that's where they discover the secluded area to bury Holly. On July 14th, 23-year-old John Wymunk was arrested and charged with Holly's murder. He was also charged with second-degree arson and conspiracy to commit second-degree arson. In his mugshot, he has a stupid smug smirk on his face, which makes you just want to punch it. In addition to the fact that he committed murder, you get that urge due to his ugly blonde mustache that looks creepy AF. 22-year-old Kyle was charged with accessory after the fact and conspiracy to commit second-degree arson. This was an egregious case. And because of the gruesome facts, if you think about it, this is almost like what happened to Vanessa Guillen last year. By this point, even though an arrest has been made in Holly's murder, two arrests actually, zero arrests had yet to be made in Megan Tuma's case. But that would soon change when on July 29th, 27-year-old Edgar Patino was arrested at his home located at 374 Lairgate Lane in Hope Hills. He was charged with first-degree murder of Megan Tuma. A search warrant of the home he shared with his wife was executed and in his home they discovered that he had purchased a typewriter the day before the alleged copycat Zodiac killer mailed his letter to the Fayetteville Observer. And when examined, it was determined that that letter was typed using that typewriter found in his home. They also found similar envelopes as the one used to mail the letter. Now, I want to go back to talk about Holly's case real quick. A few weeks after Holly's murder, her brother and father attempted to go down to Holly's house to retrieve anything that was left after the fire. But sadly, their nightmare wouldn't end when Holly died. According to reporting by WRAL, the family was turned away by the apartment management complex, stating that the family would need to get, get this, a power of attorney from John Wymunk. They claimed that when Holly died, everything automatically became his. Holly's dad and brother got things worked out when John signed the necessary paperwork. But can you imagine having to wait for your daughter's murderer to give you permission to gather her belongings? What an absolute nightmare. And Holly Wymunk's case is one of those cases where you have two families on two different sides of the fence, right? You have the parents who are grieving the death of their daughter. And you have the grieving parents grieving their sons who are alleged to have committed a heinous crime. And John's parents do not believe that he had anything to do with his wife's murder. In fact, they are frequently contacted by reporters and time and time again, they say their son is innocent. John's father, Florian Weimunk, cannot picture his son as a cold-hearted killer. Instead, he describes his son as, quote, loving, big-hearted, 
someone who considers everyone a friend, constantly striving for their safety and happiness, end quote. But even if he didn't kill Weimunk, we know those statements are far from true as he ruthlessly beat his wife and belittled her due to his own insecurities. So now that the two cases, the Megan Tuma and Haile Weimunk cases had practically been solved by early August of 2008, the community could be at ease, right? At least the female soldier community. It turned out there really wasn't a serial killer, so they were safe. Or were they? Well, that feeling of safety wouldn't last long. When on September 30th, 29-year-old Sergeant Christina Smith and her husband Richard Smith were taking an evening stroll through their neighborhood in the Hildendale subdivision of Fayetteville when they were brutally attacked by a knife-wielding psychopath hiding behind a tree waiting for a victim. Christina fought for her life valiantly but ultimately was stabbed multiple times including twice in the back, once in the neck, and once in the left arm. And she would later die from her wounds on the way to the hospital. Christina and her husband Richard worked at the 5th Battalion of the 4th Psychological Operations Group at Bragg. She was a graphics illustrator and Richard was an electronics maintenance technician. But one report I read said that he was a videographer, although I don't believe that's true. Police were called to the scene on Baxter Street and Richard, who escaped the assault with his life, but still obtained minor injuries, told investigators that they were just walking. He was walking a little bit ahead of his wife when a man jumped out from behind a tree and attacked the pair. First, starting with Christina. When Richard saw what was happening, he lunged towards the attacker, but the attacker managed to run away and escape. But you know, there was something about Richard's story that just wasn't adding up. Why was his wife mortally wounded and his injuries were, I don't know, so fluffy and superficial? It wouldn't even be three days later when Richard was arrested for planning the attack on his wife. What? And they found the person who actually executed Richard's plan. 18-year-old private first class Matthew I don't know how to say this last name, but it's like Kavapil or Vapil. Let's just go with that, Vapil. They were both charged with first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit murder. Christina's murder was a contract killing. Detectives discovered that Richard had agreed to pay an impressionable young soldier, Matthew, upwards of $30,000 if he killed his wife. Apparently, after Matthew stabbed Christina, he ran from the scene removing his clothes and dumping both his clothes and the knife in a creek two miles away. But it wouldn't be long until Tip led detectives to that creek. Divers would use cameras to navigate the murky waters, and their search was successful when they discovered the murder weapon, a knife. And in nearby woods, they also discovered the bloody clothes worn by Matthew. Baby-faced Matthew. And when I say baby-faced, I mean baby-faced. He was only 18 years old. Well, he ended up confessing to everything. He said that Richard approached him twice, asking him if he would be willing to kill his wife for $30,000. And after the second time, Matthew agreed to do the deed. But investigators also discovered that he wasn't the first or the last person who Richard asked 
to kill his wife, which is crazy. Well, Matthew wore black. Richard picked Matthew up and took him to the hiding spot behind a tree. Then Richard went home and convinced his poor unsuspecting wife to go on an evening walk with him. Matthew saw the couple coming and he waited until they passed the tree. Then he jumped out and attacked Christina. All the while, Christina fought for her life and Richard just watched as his wife was brutally murdered. Then Matthew ran and Richard ran to a nearby neighbor's house to call for help. In two of the three cases, a female soldier is killed by either their husband or significant other in the summer of 2008. The prosecutors sought the death penalty. Megan Tuma's murderer was Edgar Patino. Her manner of death was eventually ruled as asphyxiation, either by drowning or strangling. Edgar was charged with first-degree murder, but he ended up cutting a deal and pled guilty to second-degree murder, and he was sentenced to 16 years and four months minimum to 20 years and five months maximum in prison. Immediately after Megan's body was discovered and the media found out that she had been missing from the army for a week without accountability, the army ordered an internal investigation. Three months later, their findings revealed that three non-commissioned officers were reprimanded for basically losing track of one of their soldiers. In fact, one NCO deliberately lied in an attempt to cover up their failure. Holly Weimunk's murderer was John Weimunk. He was charged with first-degree murder, second-degree arson, and conspiracy to commit arson. It took two years to bring him to trial, but in the end, he ended up taking a plea agreement, whereas he pled guilty and the prosecutors removed the death penalty from the table. He ended up being sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. So something that I think is important for you to know is that North Carolina isn't like some other states that force the defendant to describe the murder. In North Carolina, in fact, at the time, at least, I don't know about now, a person could plead guilty and not describe what happened, leaving everyone to wonder, why did he commit the crime? As for why did Kyle help him, one of the investigators who spoke to the 48 Hours crew said that he believes Kyle was involved because of the military code, stating that there's a strong bond between Marines. But you know what? To that, I say pish posh. And you've heard me say this time and time again. I love military folks, but I to, you want me to hide a dead body or cover it up for you? I don't think my bond for you is that tight, to be honest. And I hardly want to watch your kids. What makes you think I want to hide a body for you? I just think sometimes that people are straight, you know, have like a loose screw in their head. Kyle pled guilty to accessory after the fact, arson and conspiracy to commit arson. And he served three years of a five year sentence and he is already out. At Holly's funeral, her two kids, six and three at the time of her death, attended. Her little boy was given a folded up flag. And this just broke my heart. Representative Bruce Braley introduced the Holly Lynn James Act, a bill to help victims of sexual assault and domestic violence in the military get justice. 
The bill, however, never passed. Christina Smith's murderers were Richard Smith and Matthew. Both were charged with first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit murder. Four years after the murder, in an effort to avoid the death penalty, they both pled guilty and were sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Christina's parents sued Richard and Matthew for wrongful death in the state of North Carolina, and the judge ruled in her parents' favor, ordering them to pay $20 million. But you know as well as I do that they will never be paid. But according to the Military Times, the judge also ordered Richard Smith's parents to pay Christina's family $275,000 because of their involvement in handling the couple's money and possessions after Christina's murder. 2008 was a deadly month for active duty females in the state of North Carolina. In addition to the three ladies that I discussed today, there was another female service member murdered earlier that year, Maria Lauterbach. You may have heard me talk about her back when I covered her case in episode 25. She was pregnant when she went missing in late 2007, and her body was discovered buried in her lover's backyard in early 2008 near Camp Lejeune. The guy then fled to Mexico and was subsequently extradited to the United States. Cesar Larian is now serving a life sentence without the possibility of parole for Maria's murder. If you or anyone you know is suffering from domestic violence, you can get help by contacting the hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That number again is 1-800-799-7233. The call is free and there are resources to help you get out of the situation that you're in safely. The most dangerous time statistically for a battered woman or a battered man is when they make that decision to leave and six months following the conclusion of the relationship. Please be careful. If you're interested in connecting with me, make sure that you follow me on Instagram at Military Murder Podcast or on Facebook at Military True Crime. And if you want more content, check out the Patreon fan club where for as little as a dollar a month, you get ad-free episodes. And for $5 a month, you get monthly bonus episodes. Check it out at patreon.com slash military murder. Special shout outs to my new patrons, Jessica M, Gabriel B., Katrina P, Alicia, Kathy S, Shamara P, Jessica C, Paige W, Janice R, Deborah R, Mel P, Karen G, Nicole R, and Jennifer P. This show was created by Mama Margot Productions and produced in collaboration with my bootcamp and higher fan club members. This month's newest executive producer is Nicole G. Associate producers are Emily H and Valerie S., and assistant producers are Blanca D and Ruby S. The music was created by Tyops. Until next time, remember, you never really know what someone is capable of, so remain vigilant always. You have a fabulous week, and I'll keep digging to bring you another military murder story next week. Podcast.